Good morning. Some Sundays you, uh, at least I, feel especially like uh, this is a great privilege to be here and to share the word and to be part of God's people. Um, and then other Sundays you have where you feel like it's rough getting going, getting moving. Uh, we've been moving stuff out of our house for the last two days into storage units as we anticipate moving uh, in the near future to be closer to our daughter. And uh, we're not leaving town, or at least we're not leaving the area. But uh, man, I'll tell you what, getting up this morning, it was not easy. It was so hard. And everything on my body is telling me I'm nuts for standing up here for 20 minutes, but <laughs> I'll make it 30 just to even that out. So, <laughs> so this morning, as uh, Will has already said, we are looking at the last of our Ten Commandments. How exciting that we've been through all of them so far. Um, as we come into it, we really want to focus on it uh, because it is a little bit of a unique commandment. Unlike all of the other commandments we looked at, this 10th one uh, is one that most of us can't escape. We break it on a continual basis. Uh, we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning. And the 10th commandment is just simply put, you shall not covet. Uh, it reads more precisely, and you shall not covet what? Your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, for most of us who live in the North Liberty, Iowa City area, Coveting oxes and donkeys is not a big problem, but I think we're missing the point here. Uh, that last little line, or anything that is your neighbor's. The word covet means to wish for something or someone as your possession. As Moses writes this to the second generation of former slaves, he's anticipating their wealth. They don't have wealth right now. They've been out wandering in the wilderness. So I'm sure when they read this or heard about this, this was kind of interesting to them. Uh, I, my neighbor doesn't have large fields or many livestock uh, or male servants or female servants. It's almost a prophetic command. When the day comes, when you get into the new promised land, when you take over that uh, land which the Canaanites had sowed, which the houses they had built and so forth, when you become wealthy, when you have all the things that you need, think about this commandment. You need to protect yourself against the sin of Eve and Cain, well-known stories from the Old Testament for the children of Israel, wanting what God has not given to us. In other words, Moses is saying that at some point when you're successful farmers, artisan, businessmen, and such, when you're dressed to the nines and parading about, when you are depositing money into the temple coffers, when your family is large and successful, when your girth speaks to an ample dinner table, take care, right? As dangerous as the hardships and deprivations of slavery in Egypt were, there is something even more dangerous to your spiritual well-being and future. The Hebrew word here, kama, 
just means to greatly desire. How is desire a sin? Because it is, as Moses uses, the opposite of contentment. The sin of coveting is basically saying to the Lord, you haven't done right by me. I, I don't appreciate the fact that you have given other people these wonderful blessings, but you've withheld them from me. Sometimes that in our lives, in our everyday lives, that can mean my health. I, I look at other people and they seem to be enjoying life well into their 80s and their 90s, but why oh, health has always been a problem for me from the beginning. Other people seem to be able to drive magnificent automobiles, and I'm always driving 10-year-old clunkers. Uh, my house, it's fine, I get by, but I certainly don't live in a mansion. Uh, someone else's children seem to be doing all things that I wish my kids could do and would do. And we just build up a whole litany of things in which we express our lack of contentment. We don't want to appreciate what God has already given us. Now, all the other commandments warn us against external actions. Do not murder. Do not bear false witness, as Andrew preached last week. Do not forsake the Sabbath. Uh, don't carve idols. All sins that others can see. Sins that, to be done, to avoid detection, would have to be done under the cover of darkness. That's why Scripture says that men love the darkness. We, we want to hide our sins. However, this 10th commandment, do not covet, is a unique sin. It's a sin that really only God can see, that only God can perceive. It requires divine light into our minds and dark hearts. So we could be sitting here in church this morning, as we are, a collection of godly people by all accounts. Anybody would walk in here and say, well, these people must be righteous people. They're in church. Uh, there's deacons, there's elders, there's musicians, there's children's ministry workers, there's young, there's old. And all of us have big smiles on our faces and cheery words are exchanged with one another. Yet all the while, we could be practicing covetousness, thinking in our hearts, did you see that car that guy was driving? Or look, they have a new baby. Oh, I so want one. Look at all the things that they have, the way that they can dress, the happiness on their faces. All the while, we're begrudging God our praise. We're not joyful. We're not saying, thank you, Father, for what you've given us. We are, in fact, resentful, and we're thinking of ways in which we can obtain that which God has not given us. Let's just take a little bit more modern approach than the book of Deuteronomy on this particular commandment and the most common of sins i think that we all participate in when we look at the apostle paul's words in philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 10 he writes this i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you have had no opportunity not that i'm speaking of being in need for now, this is the key word, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned, again, there's that word, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, the key word here is to be content. And how do we get content? As it says in verse 11, it's by learning it. Paul says that he has learned the art of contentment. It is not something that comes natural to a fallen person. We're always yearning. We always feel a lack. We, we significantly complain to God about so many things in our life without first asking if this was his will. The word learned in the Greek here speaks of a process of experiencing or proving an already gained knowledge. It's not that we don't understand. Uh, God made me to look this way, right? I can look in the mirror a thousand times. It's not going to change. Boy, how I wish I looked like this. Uh, we can stand outside and take inventory of our possessions, and we can say, oh, they're not enough. They're not the right kind. They're not the highest quality. Uh, we can look at our bank book. We can go online and see what the bank has done to us recently, and we can say, man, this is not enough. I can't believe I've worked this long in my life to achieve so little. And we just get more and more caught up in the society that we live in, the gross materialism that is around us, that really is the definition of American society compared to the way the rest of the world lives. We never really stop and ask God, how do you want me to live? Who do you want me to be? If we did that, as Paul says, we might learn how to be content. Has it ever crossed our minds that God wants us to be less than beautiful? Has it ever crossed our hearts that God wants us to live in a constant state of need upon him? Maybe somehow God is bringing glory to himself through our illnesses, through our sicknesses. Uh, that's, that's beyond the pale. That's not exactly what God wants from me. He wants me to be full of joy. I know that. I feel that. God can't possibly want me to suffer. And yet when we look in Hebrews chapter 5, what do we read? That the Son of Man, that God himself, had to suffer so that he could learn. He could learn what his role is before the Father. You see, the sin of covetousness really is not so much about the sin that you're saying, oh, I want more, though that is in itself a problem. The sin is coming about because we're saying to God, you don't know what you're doing. You've made some major mistakes in my life. It's not fair. Oh, that word, it's not fair, <laughs> that phrase. That's hard. What is fairness? Do we deserve to have more? Do we deserve to have all the things that some people in our society seem to have? We have to go to the Father with that request. Now, Paul, the son of a wealthy Jew living in Tarsus, highly educated rabbi, the aspiring Pharisee, now sometimes has days when he doesn't eat in order to continue the mission that Christ has put upon him. He says, I have learned how to be in need. I have learned how to hunger. He covers the gamut in those two phrases. To hunger means he doesn't have food. To be in need may mean that he didn't have a place to sleep. He didn't have the proper clothes to wear. Paul says everything is up for grabs when I serve God. And I've learned to appreciate it. I love it. It's hard, though, to get to that point. 
sometimes we have to go through those times of great need of stark contrast with the society that we live in in order for us to appreciate just how great an ascetic lifestyle can be uh, a lifestyle in which we shun the extras when we say we don't want more when i am content to keep just what i have it's hard ministering to the rich jews and gentiles in the roman empire paul finds that they were insensitive to his needs at times notice the word that he uses here i would rejoice greatly in the lord because you have revived your concern the church at philippi had been his major supporter and now that he's been gone from them for quite a while they had run into some hardships of their own and they had stopped taking care of his need but now they have brought it back up and they have renewed their efforts to look after paul oh those of us especially who are in ministry we can be this way we can look at it and say oh you have not taken care of me well, you know it's your fault it's your problem but paul is saying that's not the case i have learned how to survive even when things aren't going my way and he and he ends with that really amazing and rich statement i can do all things through him who strengthens me in other words the ministry is going to go on I'm going to be used by God whether you do what you're supposed to do or not. He's the one who's in charge. God has revived their concern for him, but in the meantime, God is still taking care of him. Paul is learning to be content with what he has. The New Testament is filled with similar warnings as this one. Uh, let's look at James 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death jen wilkins in her book on these ten commandments quotes her pastor when he says in a sermon that we are the belated announcement of what we've been thinking about for the past 30 days think about that we're the belated announcement of what we have been thinking about for the past 30 days you see this sin of covetousness isn't something usually that just hits us all of a sudden. And we're all of a sudden, oh, I sinned. Just like a lie, you could be telling the truth over and over and over, and then some reason, somehow, you shade it. You expand upon something you shouldn't have. You, you make a, a statement that really uses uh, hyperbole, but you meant it as truth, and people can say, well, you just lied. I just lied. It caught me by surprise. But that's not the way it is with covetousness. We start hatching that idea in our hearts and we start thinking about this and say, well, man, I, I need more, I want more. And it turns into a bitterness and it turns into a, a, a anger almost. Uh, if not, then to sadness. And it's 30 days of percolating. It doesn't have to be 30, it could be three, it could be 300, it doesn't matter. But eventually, that sin of covetousness, those thoughts of I want more are gonna produce a sin pattern in our life where we're never content where we always want more when we're bitter that god hasn't done right by us when other people haven't done right by us think about that for just a second what paul is saying here um excuse me what james is saying here james is saying it starts off as a desire a craving it's the same word that we use for a lot of positive things right 
epithumia, it's a compound word. It just means that there's a desire, but with the epi on there, it just means it is an emphatic desire. I have a tremendous desire for this. Have you ever been gripped by something in your life that you just feel that you need? Uh, early in my life, uh, in college, I had a Honda 250 motorcycle. I love that thing. And it took forever for me to convince my mother that I should be able to drive this. Now, give my mom a break. You know, between my brother and I, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of stitches we had. I was missing an eye. Dean had broken his bones. We, I, I don't blame her. You know, it's just like, why in the world would we, in you know, the right mind, allow you to drive a motorcycle? But it didn't matter. My friend had one, and he wanted us to go to college together every day on a motorcycle. And I thought, this is great. A guy in our church was selling it. It had the sissy bars on it so that you couldn't get hurt too bad. But on my birthday, to signify that I could get a motorcycle, what did she give me? A full-faced bell helmet. I mean, this thing was monstrous. Now, if you've never seen a 250 Honda, it's kind of like, you know, so it really looked kind of ridiculous, like a bear on a motorcycle in a circus or something. But the whole time I had it, was I content? Not at all. I wanted a 750 Kawasaki. I don't know where that thought came from. I just wanted one, and I tried to save money for it. I, I knew that it would be really difficult for me to achieve, but I wanted something bigger. I wanted to really look cool on a motorcycle, you know? I wanted something that would do more than just get me from point A to point B. That's how covetousness begins. We start thinking in those terms. We're just never happy. Now, before I had that Honda motorcycle, I would have thought having one was amazing. I would have thought, oh, I'll be totally content if I can have this. But the truth is, there's so many things like this in our life where we get what we think that we want only to propel us forward to desiring the next step up, right? It can be true of houses. It can be true of who we date, who we're married to. It could be true of so many things in our life. All of them, as James says, started a desire, a craving, and if we're not careful, that leads to sin. And sin's ultimate destination is death. Because through that process, we're ignoring God. We're in fact insulting God. Because it'd be just like one of us giving a gift to our child. Uh, my brother was famous for this. My mom would give him a truck. You know, he wanted a Tonka truck when he was a boy. I don't know if you remember Tonka trucks. They were big trucks but she just didn't get it and so often she would give him a little truck a teeny truck and the next thing I know my brother would be at the store literally trying to exchange it for a, a Tonka truck right um, if she got him uh, quick draw guns he would want re a real gun he'd want the BB gun which there's no way that she would want that it, it finally ended in his uh, at the end of his time at home when she bought him a uh, big boombox. I don't know if you remember those, big radio, could play eight-track tapes. And I remember my brother walking down the street in our neighborhood with that thing on his shoulder with an eight-track tape stuck in there playing that. He really thought he was cool. But it's not really what he wanted. And uh, years later, he pestered my mom long enough to get a new one. We do the same thing with God. God blesses us. We pray for something. God blesses us. 
And we said, well, that's just not quite it, God. You haven't done exactly what I'm asking for. I had an idea in my heart of something with a little more pizzazz to it, a little more bells on it. I wanted something that other people might stop and say, wow, look at that. You know, look what Dave has. Uh, and we're basically insulting him. We're basically saying, you don't understand my heart, what my real needs are. That's the real sin of covetousness. It does not allow us to be content. Jesus also warns of this sin in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, take care, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In other words, the more possessions that you have, the more you are possessed by them. The imperative command here, be on guard, is strong. He's basically telling us that we should not take this lightly. How do you stay on guard against covetousness? What is the practical steps that we can take to do obedience to what Jesus is telling us here? If I'm going to be on guard, that means I'm going to watch my heart. I'm going to be aware of my uh, ability to take what God has given and to be unthankful for it. So I have to practice gratefulness. I have to practice joy even when I don't feel it. But I have to make sure that as thoughts come into my life, I'm taking them captive. Just as I would of thoughts that are about any of the other Ten Commandments. If I'm lusting after a woman, as Jesus says, then I'm committing adultery already. I have to make sure that that doesn't happen. If I desire to steal from someone, I have to make sure I won't do that. When we get a covetous thought, when we decide that we like what someone else has and God hasn't blessed us with it, the first step that we have to take is to pray to God. Lord, what is it that you want me to have in my life? Is it this house? Is it this car? Is it this place, this rank in my business? Should I be wanting more? How do we discern that fine line between covetousness and then just desiring to do more, to work as hard as we can, to provide for those that we love. Uh, what is that distinction there? And I think it comes back to making sure that God is blessing us by submitting it to him in prayer. Jesus, the son of God, could have anything that he wanted in life. And how did he live? He lived humbly. He lived simply. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And yet we are not satisfied with just having a house or a bed. When it comes to vehicles, maybe because I'm a guy, those things always resonate in my heart. But all I need is something to get me from point A to point B. I don't need all the bells and whistles and everything. I have to submit my car purchase to the Lord. I remember when I was in, uh, just out of high school. I was working with Ione uh, as a junior high uh, leader in the state of Nebraska, but we specifically focused on our, on our church's youth group. And the opportunity came for us to take some of our kids to Kearney, Nebraska for a junior high retreat. I didn't know how I was going to get there because I didn't have a car that could make it. But now my pastor, I own his father, uh, he told me this story many years later, but he had been wrestling with this thing. He needed a car. Walt had always been a poor man. 
uh, his church in Jamestown, North Dakota had blessed him with a vehicle. It was one of the greatest moments in his life when he felt like God was saying, I love you and I care for you. But as time went on, he began to think, you know, that 1974 Monte Carlo. Now that's a car. That is a great car. It looks so sporty, so nice. And so Walt bought that car. And he said, I knew it was wrong when I bought it. <laughs> that's what he's telling me. He says, I just didn't think God really thought that I needed it. But he bought it anyway. And then he did what so many of us do when we step out of God's will, when we purchase things, when we achieve things that he doesn't necessarily want us to have, is Walt said, well, you know, I'll justify this by using it for a spiritual purpose, right? I do this. But, you know, he said to me, Dave, take my car. Now, think about this for a second. This guy's entrusting to a 17-year-old a bunch of junior hires to go out. It's a four-hour drive in his almost brand-new Monte Carlo. It was like seven foot of hood. I mean, this car, you just pressed on the gas, and it was like, and off we went. But he was feeling so guilty. He bought something that he knew that God didn't necessarily want for him. And sure enough, I got pulled over by the Nebraska State Troopers on the way out. I, you know, I tried to give that old, well, I just pressed on the gas. I had no idea. But in fact, I knew fully well what the idea was, and uh, I was going way beyond what I should. It didn't help that in the back seat, one of the junior high guys was being a smart aleck, and he's like, Dave, don't let the pig tell you what to do. Man, stand up for your rights. You know, shut up. <laughs> ah, I'll tell you. Covetousness gets us in all kinds of trouble. And we can't justify. I, I, I can't tell you how many men that I meet. Not all divorces are evil and wrong. Some are justified. But in a great number of them, men think, oh, there's another woman. Life would be so much better with them. And then what's their spiritual justification for that? Oh, God would want me to be happy. Really? Does that say somewhere in Scripture that that's the truth? Maybe God wants you to work on making her happy. Maybe God wants you to humble yourself and recognize that it may not be the best marriage in the world, but it's what you've got. Well, my kids, they'll love the situation a lot better once we're apart because it's so difficult now. All we do is fight. And again, we're always looking for ways to justify what we really have created as a covetousness thought in our heart. It leads to sin. It causes destruction in families. It causes great hardship on us. When you buy something that we can't afford, that God has not blessed us with, how do we pay for that? Well, we've got to rob Peter to pay Paul. I've got to take money away, maybe from what the Lord has shown me I should be giving to the church. I'm going to take some of that away and apply it to the car. And then we're going to come up with that spiritual justification, right? I'm going to do that. It's okay because, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to use that whatever it is, for the Lord's work. And no one else is buying this. You know, I've, I've had situations like this in my life, and no one else buys it. I can come home and tell my wife, well, I'm going to do this with this. And she just looks at me, and she's, that's not the truth. I just wanted it. If we're honest about it, and we realize it's a sin, the second thing we have to do, besides asking God for his permission and asking him to show us what he's provided for us, is to ask his forgiveness. God, I, I blew it. I participated in the sin. I coveted after what someone else had. I went and I took it. 
I got it, and you did not lead in that, and I have shown discontent with what you have already provided. He'll forgive us. He will. But we'll probably have to live out the actual results of such a sin. Maybe we'll have financial hardship for quite a while. Maybe our kids won't be happy with our new family. Whatever it is, God can forgive. It's not a hopeless situation, but the, the wisdom, the wisdom it shows in Scripture if we walk with Him. One of my favorite passages on this particular sin is in Romans 7. When Paul writes this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet. Notice what he's saying here. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. It's not like we're ignorant. It's not like we don't sense when we're doing that which is wrong or against the Lord's will, if we're believers. But we can't specifically say what it is until we study these Ten Commandments. Now we know. And none of us who have lived on this side of the law and of grace can ever claim ignorance because the, the word of God shines with a floodlight into our hearts and now we know I'm coveting or any of the other sins. But sin, if you do covet, seizes the opportunity through this commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It's not like sin is responsible for causing us to covet. It's that it is flooded within us. It's like a bacteria that grows. And we seem to have no ability, no antibiotic to stop it. All that the commandment is doing is showing us just how sinful we are. For apart from the law, Paul writes, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy. It's good. It's righteous. It's me that is the problem, Paul is saying. These commandments play a very important role in our life. And as I close this morning, I just want to <coughs> excuse me, strive to tell you that it's because of these commandments that we know we need the gospel. The gospel, the true story of Jesus Christ, that he gave his life upon that cross to take upon himself our penalty, our guilt, and our shame for our sins. We can't get to God just by trying to live good lives. We need the gospel, and the commandments demonstrate that to us. Paul uses this 10th commandment to illustrate this. For in verse 7, it says, I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The word says that all of us have sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to confess that. We have to understand that. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, these commandments are an illustration exactly what's wrong with us. It brings us to the point of confession that I am born with a sin nature. It is my desire to rebel against God. Very few of us struggle with the uh, desire to be too righteous. Uh, God, I, you got to help me here. I just, all I want to do is tell the truth and, and, and be an upright man. 
No, what we struggle with is just the opposite of these commandments, and the commandments are showing to us that we're sinful. Paul continues to write in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Try to stop being covetous. Try to stop it. It's hard in your own flesh. You almost can't do it. We are so uh, clueless as to how much our sin upsets the Lord. And when we try it, when we identify it, when the law makes known to us, this is my sin, and then we just in our own flesh, our own strength, try to not do it, it's impossible. Paul says, now if, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is exactly what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. The sin of covetousness, along with all these other commandments, reveals to me and to God that I am a sinner. I can't carry out obedience to these commandments. You may try. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I haven't killed anybody. Um, my marriage is good. You know, I'm not bearing false witness against anybody. I'm not carving idols at home. I'm, I've knocked most of these out of the way. I'm a good person. Goodness. Everybody will tell you that. Ask my neighbors. I actually go out of my way to help others from time to time. I contribute a good amount of what I make to those who are in need. I am a good man. And yet, we get to this 10th commandment, do not covet. Who amongst us can say, I have not participated in that sin? Who would know? No one, except for God. We have desire. We have that thing in us that makes us discontent with our station in life. Think of what the Israelites had as they came into that new land. Wow. They had everything they could want. They had God as their God. Jehovah God was watching over them. They had all the blessings of being God's people. He provided for them. He kept them from being sick like the Egyptians. He gave them economic prosperity, and still they were not content. They wanted something else. They wanted other gods. They wanted the fleshly sins that God said you cannot have. Paul finishes this section by saying, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and make me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Are you wretched this morning? I certainly am. Before Christ, there was no solution to that. But in Christ... We are washed, we are cleansed, we are purified. All we have to do is confess that we are sinners and God will just provide for us all of the results of being with Christ. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer to that, Jesus Christ. He's the only answer. As we live our life, as we deal with all the things that we have to deal with, 
we constantly have to go back to the fact that the only thing that we get that is great, the only thing that we have that we can look to that no one can take away from us is our salvation. Oh, Lord, thank you. Nothing else is guaranteed. Let me say that again. Nothing else is guaranteed. I've said this before, but one of my favorite sayings from my friend is, all this on a bag of chips. What else do I need? except to be saved. He wants to take away my house, my health, my family, whatever. That's up to God. But as long as I'm in him, as long as Jesus Christ is providing for me that salvation which I so need so that I can have fellowship with God, then he can have everything else. Is that your attitude this morning? Is that my attitude? Sin is so powerful. And the more possessions we have, according to Christ, the more they possess us, which gets us away from that ultimate focus on Jesus Christ, on knowing who we are. If you're here this morning and you've never asked Christ to be your Savior, it is my urgent plea that you quit striving to do it on your own and you rest in Christ. It just takes a simple prayer. Father, just I confess that I'm a sinner and that I need the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, he took my place. And I accept that, and I thank you for that gift of salvation. It's it. He'll take it from there. He'll run with you. He is your Lord and Savior from that point on. If we've already done that, and we're str still struggling with this sin of being covetous, then I just pray that we would all take a second to take an inventory of what we have in the Lord. I have salvation. I have eternal life. I've been blessed by him in so many ways. Instead of focusing on all those things that you wish you had, on the left side of the paper, write down all those things that you know he's given you, the ways that he's blessed you. And then ask him, every time you want to move over to that right side column, God, is this what you want for me? Is this what I'm supposed to have? Is this your answer to all of these things? Do I need a greater this or that, a bigger car, a bigger house, healthy body? He may just say no. He said, no, I got you. Through your weakness, through your need, I will show, show myself powerful. I will show myself as glorious. Don't get ahead of me, son. What we're really looking for those things which we want so badly in this world is really what's reserved for us as believers after this life is over. We're guaranteed nothing in this life. But when it's done, we will stand with Father because of what the Son has done. And then we will enter into the inheritance that he has given us by his will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I ask you, Father, that you would help us not to be people who are covetous, but instead, Father, to be people who love you, who are willing to be in need in order that our walk with you may be authentic. May we separate ourselves from our neighbors. May we not live like them, but may we still be an example to them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.